Spencer, you're looking real sunburned, a little tired today. You were racing your bike up at Rebecca's Private Idaho. How was it? That's right, Fred. I went up to Ketchum, Idaho. It was awesome. It's a really great event, really fun. But yes, it is quite sunny up there. Turns out they don't have a lot of trees for shade. Fortunately, I was wearing Roka's GP1 sunglasses. These guys are sponsoring all of our coverage of gravel events this year, and they're great sunglasses. Ultralight, 25 grams. You can customize the fit with these bendy temple pieces. Really comfortable, and um, yeah, keeps the sun out of your eyes, too. Yeah, you look at the American Peloton, and you see a lot of shades that look similar, and that's what I like about these Roka's. They look a little different. You know, this is a brand uh, I've been seeing making its move in American cycling in the last year or two. So keep your eyes open for the Roka shades. Yeah, and they'll help protect your eyes too. That's Bonus. Good. Well, thanks to Roka for sponsoring this week's episode of the Villainous Podcast. Let's get on with the show. You're tuned into the Villainous Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulison and joined through the miracles of technology, we have Andrew Hood, our European correspondent. Andy, you're coming to us from a town that I cannot pronounce. You're at the Vuelta España. Where are you right now? Good evening, fellas. We are uh, snug up against the border of Portugal, up in kind of uh, western, not quite northwestern Spain, up on the western border of Portugal and Spain in a town called Bermillo de Sayago. Mm, yes. Now, don't ask me to say that again. <laughs> Let me guess. They have jamón and uh, they have great vermouth there. Mm. Uh, Andy is out there covering the Vuelta España. And on this week's episode of the show, we're going to have all sorts of Vuelta talk. We're also going to talk with Spencer about Rebecca's Private Idaho because you were up in Ketchum, Idaho, riding your bike, big gravel event. And um, then we're going to hear from some awesome cyclists. We're going to hear from Ben King, American racer, who has won two stages of the Vuelta España. We're also going to hear with the mustachioed man himself, Ashton Lambie, track racer, who set a new world record in the individual pursuit this past weekend. Spencer, that's kind of a weird story. Why is this so interesting? Yeah, this guy is, he's an amazing talent and he's only really seriously been racing track for two years. Prior to that, He's a gravel racer. Oh, wow. So, you know, I think we're onto something here covering these gravel races. He was a dirty Kansas rider, top finisher there. He also has the record for the fastest crossing of Kansas, huh. you know, from, from the western end to the eastern end. It's like 24 hours or something crazy like that. Don't ask me how that translates into a four minute effort on the velodrome, but it, it seems like it does. Wait, so world record crossing Kansas and now world record in the 4K individual pursuit. That is quite a resume this guy's Yeah, building. let's see you do that, Jack Bobridge, riding across <laughs> Kansas. Come on. That was the record he beat, actually, Jack Bobridge's. We're also going to have a check-in with American Recep Kuss, who's uh, raced in the Welta and looking really sharp. Looking good. Oh, my God. He is climbing very well, whittling down that peloton. But, guys, first, let's get into it. We just finished up stage 10 of the Welta España, won by Ella, Elia Viviani. Uh, Dane's stage. favorite. Dane's favorite. I wish Dane were here to talk about Elia Viviani. Eh, That'd be... It's all right. You know. No? no? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> because instead we have Andrew Hood here to talk to us about not just Elia Viviani, but all the stories going on with the Welta. And so right now we have uh, Simon Yates leading the Welta in the red jersey. We have a number of strong riders all hovering around in the top 10. And Hoodie... To me, it just seems like 
everyone is still playing the waiting game because we've had two sort of summit finishes, but the really tough parts of this Welta are yet to come. What's the dynamic at the front of the race right now? Yeah, that's right, Fred. It's been, uh, everything is really kind of backloaded in this Welta España. Rody just finished stage 10, so we're halfway through the Welta, but it really, no one really knows who's going to win. Simon Yates is leading by one second over Valverde. I was speaking to Simon this morning. You know, he would be so happy to get rid of the jersey. He doesn't want it now. Uh, and I don't think Movistar, I mean, maybe Valverde wants it, but, you know, they're really, really riding for Nairo. He's probably the guy that looks, you know, as the favorite without Chris Froome, without Alberto Contador this year. It's really a wide open race. And everyone's kind of just waiting, waiting, waiting to see who's going to step into that kind of power vacuum at the top of that leaderboard. So you mentioned that Yates doesn't really want the jersey. First of all, we've seen a bit of hot potato with the jersey already. Uh, Kwiatkowski giving it up after a few stages. But, you know, at the Giro d'Italia, we talked about this dynamic of Simon Yates taking the pink jersey early in the race and Mitchelton Scott then racing with a strategy of seeing how long they could protect it. And as we saw, you know, Simon Yates cracked in the third week, was not able to hold on. Now, a lot of the messaging we had out of Mitchelton Scott coming into the Welta was that they did not want to do that again. They didn't want Yates to take an early lead, which would force them to protect what kind of quotes, what kind of sense have you gotten from both Yates and Mitchelton Scott about the position that they find themselves in and whether they're happy about that position? Yeah, yeah it's an interesting twist on, on uh, La Covetia on Sunday. Yates didn't really seem too excited to actually have the jersey. He said it really wasn't part of their game plan. They really expected Valverde to, to make it with those front guys on Sunday, and he was really the in the pole position to get the leader's jersey from Mollard. Um, but the big difference, really, when you look at Yates at Giro d'Italia and looking at Yates at this Vuelta, really was who was in the race. At the Giro, you had both Tom Dumoulin and Chris Froome. And the calculus was they knew that they were just going to lose a lot of time to both of those guys in that stage 16 time trial at the Giro. So that's why you saw Yates just attacking, 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 trying to get those time bonuses, trying to bolster that lead as much as he could with the assumption that he was going to lose, you know, a minute, two minutes in that time trial. In the end, it turned out that Yates, remember, I think, went so deep in that time trial to defend the pink jersey, that almost is what kind of, he went so far into the red. It just seemed like that that's when he, his decline started from that point after that time trial. Whereas here at this Welta, neither one of those guys were at this Welta, the one guy who probably can't take a lot of time in the time trial was Kelderman. He's almost two minutes back. So that's why the dynamic is he's much more conservative in this welter because you have to be strong at the sharp end at the, at the last week of this welter spot. So, Hoodie, you've been there talking with journalists, team directors, other riders. What sense do you have of people's confidence in Yates to be able to hold this jersey? Yeah, I think I think the confidence, uh, you know, people are not riding off Yates. It's, it, you know, I think the takeaway from the from the Giro from within inside the peloton is he really confirmed himself as a Grand Tour contender. Okay, he fell on his face and and it all unravels for him there in those last two mountain stages. But I think that everyone here is seriously taking him as a threat. Uh, they're not certainly looking past Yates in any way, shape, or form. Um, but he's in that kind of a bundle of riders that that kind of a half dozen riders who's looking already sharp in this welter. But we still won't know really until next, this coming weekend when we finally get into those really 
really difficult climbing stages like Camparona, uh, Lagos de Covadonga. And there's a new climb we have up in Asturias, one of those just brutal, you know, 25% grade type climbs that's going to just really see one rider emerge and to take control of the well time. I was so bummed out uh, on that climb to La Covatia because Wilco Kelderman did look so good. You know, Wilco Kelderman, Dutch rider, great time trialist. We've been talking for a few years now about how he's Grand Tour potential, looking to make his mark. But man, something always seems to go wrong with this guy. What was it? The Giro last year, he was caught up in that motor, the crash with the motorcycle. And here he is having a great opportunity to do something. And what was it? A flat tire? got I mean, basically a mechanical a few stages ago and was forced to chase. Uh, who do you, I mean, do you, think, do you think he's too far back at this point? Our good friend Wilco? Yeah, that's, I was, in fact, talking to a sport director today. And even today's stage, he punctured late and then had to cha- change a wheel God. when someone smashed it in the back of his rear tire. So the guy is just cursed. Um, and plus, he was supposed to go to the tour this year and crash right before the tour and uh, was injured. That's why he kind of came to the, to the Welta. But, I mean, there's, there's a lot of expectations for Wilco to do very well in this Welta. George Bennett on Lotto Jumbo, you know, kind of pegged him to win this thing. Um, we'll see what happens, but yeah, man, he's like 150 back to Yates, the Valverde's. So that's, that's a lot of time. And we saw at Logo Vatia, he was, he was pulling off the front, but the guys were just right on his wheels. So it will be tricky for them because they're estimating they can take back about a minute on this, uh, 34 K time trial in stage 16. You know, it's not like he's going to blow the doors off like a, uh, Dumoulin can do, or, or even a Froome when he's on top of this game. You know, you mentioned uh, George Bennett. I've been really impressed with Lotto and El Yumbo. They've been taking control of the race in some of these uphill stages. Uh, seems like Kreuzweg and Bennett, though, don't really have that extra gear to finish it off. Um, what what kind of sense do you have about Lotto and El Yumbo's ambitions at this race and where their strengths are? Yeah, I've been talking to Bennett, and he's saying uh, his realistic goal is a top five at this well time. We'd love to get close to the podium as he can. Uh, whereas uh, Kweiswick, you know, I think he's kind of an unknown. He's coming in here very strong from the from the uh, Tour de France where he was uh, fifth overall. But you saw on Sunday he was just a little bit off the back on that climb. Maybe that's just him kind of blowing through the cobwebs because you can't really discount him. But, you know, is he, is he going to be one of those front guys, front line guys for the podium? I think both those guys might be just – uh, a couple of pale strokes behind. But my prediction is an all Colombian podium. Whoa. At this, at this spot. Going right out there. on a limb. I mean, Whoa. I mean you, you, got, you got it right there. It's all lined up. You got Nairo, Rigo, Uran, and Superman Lopez. Those, those three guys are going to be fighting for it. I think it's going to be those three guys. The question is in what order. Well, and uh, Superman Lopez was looking real aggressive. He was the one that started things off on that climb to La Covatia in the finale. So I think he's pretty jumpy. Uh, Rigo, I mean, I'd love to see that type of result from him. And, you know, he seems to be going all right, too. When the fireworks started in the last few K, um, he looked really good. You know, you mentioned um, Lotto and El Yumbo maybe being a couple steps behind him. I think they should be riding for Sepp Kuss. I mean, I know he's Ooh. pretty far down there, but, you know, Sepp's looking good. In fact, Hoodie, you caught up with Sepp. The other day, what's your sense of uh, his attitude at this race? Yeah, what a great, great uh, talent this guy is. I mean, here he, here he was in the first two uphill finales of this Welta, and he's been really 
the strongest domestique of, of any team so far. We saw him at Lepkovitia. He's taking huge pulls, um, you know, really almost dropping his own teammates. <laughs> so that's kind of the problem we got with Sepp is maybe he's, uh, he's so strong and, and uh, so excited to be here. And he's just loving it. You know, he's, he's just enjoying this welter. It's his first grand tour, of course, and, and you know, really get, uh, garnering a lot of attention from uh, – from the media already, people are asking me about who this kid is, you know, how far can he go? And there's, you know, really quiet optimism within that team that he can develop into a Grand Tour rider. But of course, man, you don't want to pile that pressure on a young kid so early in their career. We've seen how that turns out, you know, more than a, a few occasions, especially with some Americans. Because, you know, I think American fans are just so hungry to have someone to cheer for at a Grand Tour and in the GC. We still have TJ knocking around, but, uh, you know, we haven't had that next big winner come through the ranks. So maybe Kush is the guy. Uh, we'll see. But, you know, again, you don't want to put that kind of pressure on a young kid so, so early, right? So you got a grab with him the other day before one of the stages. Um, let's hear what Sepp Kuss has to say. So they just brought you here. You know, no pressure to really yeah. do anything besides help the team. Yeah, no pressure. I mean, honestly, it's probably good that I lost a lot of time in the, in the second stage because... Yeah, so, I mean, for me, uh, me mentally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have to handle pressure of doing GC this year or next year. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it would be a lot for me personally. Uh, so, I'm much more comfortable uh, just helping, helping the leaders, and that's um, yeah, a cool position to be in. Oh yeah. What's the ambiance like at this Belter so far? Any different than you know you've already done some big races? Do you notice a difference um, at the Welter? Oh, I think just. Personally, I feel a lot better riding, um, so that, that makes it easier. In the earlier races, I was just kind of in survival mode. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I lost a lot of weight, uh, changed my training a little bit. So, um, second half of the season so far has been, been really good. Big difference from the beginning. So, uh, yeah, when you when you feel good and you feel more in, in control, you know, the, um, the, the races seem... Uh, night and day different from uh you know when you're <laughs> when you're barely making the, the last group out of the difference there being at the front's better than being at the back obviously yeah yeah absolutely and a lot of it's just a matter of of confidence and uh yeah i mean the team's had a lot of confidence in me and uh you know them selecting me for this race or, or having it in the cards at least a little earlier on just gave me a lot of motivation so i wanted to show that that I can be a really dependable rider for the team. I mean, after Utah, what a, what a great ride you had there, not coming into this Vuelta. Yeah, I mean, uh, I definitely surprised myself there, I think. Um, yeah, and then after that race, when I came back to Europe, I just kind of pumped the brakes a little bit because I thought, oh, I'm going pretty pretty good right now. I need to need to definitely save it. Um, so yeah, didn't didn't really uh, train train too much after Utah. Just focused on being. Uh, yeah, really fresh for this race, um, and then hopefully making a difference. All right, Seb Kuss, Villeneuve's fan favorite. You know, uh, we've talked a lot about how over the winter he uh, participated in this climbing test with Chris Case and Trevor Connor for a feature story, and you know, pretty mellowed. There are a couple of days where he was just kind of hanging around the office, just like, yeah, it's cold. I don't really have anything to do. Can I hang out with you guys? Just, uh, you know, he's, he's a friendly guy. Yeah. He likes to hang out. Friend of the pod. Definitely a friend of the pod. Definite friend of the pod, Sepp Kuss. 
So, Hoodie, as we head into this final week, you know, to me, one of the big storylines, final, final half of the Welta, <laughs> one, of the, one of the biggest storylines, you brought it up, has been the success of Americans. And that comes down to uh, our uh, compatriot, Ben King, who won atop Kovatia after an amazing battle with uh, Balcomolema, a rider with pretty impressive Palmadas. You know, you've uh, been able to talk with Ben a few times at this race. What's your sense of Ben's attitude and ambitions at the uh, at the Welta? Sounds like they're getting ready for a basketball game there, and that's that little uh, <laughs> the basketball court you're hanging out in there, hoodie. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they're just packing up the last remains of the of the Welta uh, entourage here, packing up the TVs and the last tables, and you know they're ready they're ready to hit the tapas as well. <laughs> Ooh, nice. I'm sure you yeah. are too. So yeah, with with Ben, I mean, here's a guy. You know, he's been knocking around the Peloton for quite a few years now. Still, I think he's still 29, so he's not old or anything. But, but you know, he's been around for a while, been so close to that win. And, uh, you know, he's had his fair share of bad luck. I mean, last year, remember, at the Welts, he came in. He got so sick, they had to pull out after the first stage. He had some weird stomach bug, and he was just uh, puking. And, and couldn't even finish that first stage, barely finished the first stage. And then, uh, he, you know, he broke his ankle a few years ago. He's had some crashes. He's had some close calls. So, but here's a guy. He's just kind of like always plugging away, plugging away. But he has to live and die by the breakaway. You know, he's not going to win a sprint. He's not going to win on a mountaintop finish. He's not a GC guy. So, you know, he said he took early inspiration from a guy like Jens, Jens Voigt, who was his, uh, one of his uh, old teammates and roommates back in, earlier in his career. And he said, that's how I have to win a Grand Tour stage. And he almost won a stage I think, two years ago in the Welta. I think he was third in the stage. So he came into this Welta, you know, really keen on getting in the breaks. The team doesn't really have a big GC rider here. So that's where the team marching orders are. It's like, guys, get, let's get in the breaks and try to win a stage. And, man, lightning has struck twice. And it's like uh, – couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, really, to see Ben King get those wins. Who would have thought that at this point in the season, Ben King would be the only rider from Dimension Data to win a World Tour race, let alone two? Yeah, and so couldn't I, have seen that one coming. I caught up with Ben on uh, a WhatsApp call uh, the day on the on the first rest day, the day after his big summit finish, and um, talked to him about some of these things. You know talking about the battle with Molama, talking about the significance of winning these stages, both for himself and, and for Team Dimension Data, and why he has been able to succeed at this Welta specifically. You know, he, last year he said he was, in every, he was in a breakaway in every single stage race he entered, but just because of the racing dynamics, it didn't go to the line. Whereas this year at the Welta, with the smaller team sizes, where it's been hot, where there's just been a little bit more opportunity, he has recognized the opportunity and really gone for it. So let's check in with Ben King. Audio, a little bit shaky. Well, are they getting ready for a basketball game like they're over at Hoodie's place? <laughs> no, this I guy's think dribbling around and, you know, uh, I think it was just layups. your typical Spanish Wi Fi issues of, uh, you know, having dial up Wi Fi, but uh, had a great talk with him. So let's hear from Ben King. Right now, I am very pleased to be joined by Ben King. Ben, you are coming to us from the Vuelta España. It's the rest day right now. What city are you in right now, Ben? I have no clue. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan, do you know where we are? No, you know what? We're near Salamanca. I think we're in Salamanca. Great. Well, uh, you know, it's the rest day. It's the day after your thrilling victory 
um, a mountaintop finish. I felt like a good place to start, though, was to take us through that final climb to the summit yesterday. Um, you were in the breakaway. You had about a minute mm-hmm. and a half gap on Bocamolama uh, at the foot of the climb. And then the gap mm-hmm. started to come down, you know, to take me through your efforts and your emotions of that final climb. Yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of a, a tactical thing. Um, I knew that the gap was going to come down quickly to Malama on the final climb. One, he's one of the best climbers in the world. And two, being out there alone ahead of a group of five riders chasing for 10 kilometers um, cost me quite a bit of energy. Um, so I arrived at the bottom of the climb having done uh, a solo time trial versus five guys, um, pretty empty. But I knew that um, at that point I was all in, fully committed. And that when the climb started to have a chance against a rider like Mullama, then I would need to have quite a big advantage and enough advantage that in order to close it, he would have to spend a lot of his own energy so that when he did catch me, if he could, if he caught me, he would arrive also in the hurt locker and that I would have a chance to hold on to him. Um, so yeah, I just took it, uh, K by K and, um, you know, at, at, at points fully expecting to be caught, but just hoping that, um, the effort to catch me cost him enough that I could hang on. But the bick had been, uh, I wasn't, it wasn't premeditated to go alone early. Um, but I know again, I knew that DeGent would do it, and he did. So he was the first move, and I followed him. And then Mullama tried, and a few other riders threw attacks out there. And then uh, Luis Moss, I've known for a long time. I know he's a strong rider, so he chipped away off the front, and everyone just kind of looked at each other, like kind of seemingly tired of all of the confusion and attacks. Um, So I jumped on his wheel and ended up riding away from him on a steep cobble section and that's when I found myself alone. Um, but when the gap came down to 20 seconds between Malama and I, and it, you know, it really on a climb that steep, it's not a very far distance. So I could see right, see him coming right behind me. And, uh, I knew that he was pretty spent energy wise because if he had legs, he would have closed in on me at that point. Um, I was also spent, so I know that my my power wasn't extremely high um, at that point in the race, and so I knew he was also on his knees, and it was kind of a – I tried to even play with him a little bit mentally um, to recover a bit on the flat where I knew he would have to keep pushing and then try to stretch my lead out a little bit when the climb got steeper. Um, and I made my finish line 2K to go because there I knew that the climb eased off uh, just a little bit where I could try to take some speed and – recover a little bit um and there even if he caught me then i would have a chance to stay on the wheel and do the sprint against him yeah you know that la covatia climb looked like it was real stair steppy um a few steep ramps with some recovery spots in between sounds like you were able to use those recovery spots to your advantage yeah from from 10k to go to 2k to go there was really not any recovery it just went from extremely steep to really steep and then back to really you know just back and forth um very steep gradients were you getting time splits uh, from a director or anything uh during that in climb? the car yeah there there were no live splits and so they were they were counting the time you know timing it on their own 
um, from different points on the road. So I was getting that information from the car. So but now, I tried not to look behind and I tried not to look up because at 1.7k to go, I remember looking up at all of the switchbacks above me and that almost broke me mentally. So I just looked straight at the road ahead of me at the motorbike and just, just settled into uh, the most uncomfortable rhythm that I could maintain. Yeah, at the finish line, the cameras picked up a few quotes from you saying stuff like, I've never suffered like that before, and, you know, kind of having a hard time processing. Um, yeah, how would you describe your mental and emotional state when you finished, and what was the pain like? Yeah, I haven't actually watched it, um, a replay yet myself, but um, I imagine that the, the suffering was pretty evident uh, based on some comments that I received and how I was feeling at the time, but um, I went completely to and beyond my physical limit, and it just became fully a mental game to keep pushing. Um, there was nothing impressive about the the power I was doing um, compared to stuff that I do in training all the time um, on that climb. It was really just a, about how much I could suffer, and I knew that you know, to do an effort like that at the end of a day like that, you're just completely empty. Um, again, it, the temperature was um, at times up to 100 degrees, and yeah, just uh, we'd done, I think, 4,300 meters of climbing throughout the day. So it was just one of those days that just drains you. And then to have to do a, a full effort at the end like that is, uh, it costs a lot. Was there ever any, you know, mental thoughts of giving in to the pain because you already have accomplished something at this race? No. No, because I, it was also important to me to, to show that the first one wasn't a fluke. Mm. Um, I've known, and also opportunities like this just don't come along that often. Um, I've been tons of breakaways every season. And like last year I was in a breakaway in every state race that I did and not one of them arrived to the finish. Um, this year at the Vuelta, only one breakaway made it to the finish in the whole race. Other races, I'm there in support of a, a teammate, and don't have opportunities on the the real you know days that suit the breakaway or you know to be the type of rider that I am. You really have to um, just keep rolling the dice and eventually hope that you get the opportunity and that um, you're prepared to take advantage of the opportunity. And what I do in training, like I've known, I've known that I had this potential. I've known that I was capable. Um, of this kind of thing for the last three or four years um, and to have to get the opportunity not once but twice is just I I'm in shock I can't believe it like it's a uh, you know a goal that I had set for myself but um, it's uh, it hasn't really sunk in all yet coming into this race did you feel like your form was any higher than it's been before did you did you know coming into this race that you had the legs to um, you know to challenge for stage wins. Um, yeah, I knew that I, like I said, I, I knew what my capabilities were. Um, I and you also you never know what other people's capabilities are. You know, a guy like Bok Malama who just raced the Tour de France. Like, where is he at mentally in his season? Where is he at physically in his season? Um, you know, we've seen Thomas De Gent do things that are freakish. Um, 
And so you just don't know where other guys are at. And so you can't really underestimate anyone um, in a breakaway. But in terms of what I'd done in training, I was at, I'm at a good level, but um, nowhere, um, no, no records, no, uh, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't totally convinced that I was going to come and win two stages, I'll put it that way. <laughs> You know, there's been a lot written about the importance of your victories for Team Dimension Data in 2018. Um, this race, this team came into the Welta without any World Tour wins. It already has two um, with your name on it. Um, first of all, what has the mood been around the team after your victories? And then what does it mean to you to be, um, you know, the man responsible for getting Dimension Data uh, two World Tour wins so far? It's a huge honor to... Um score these victories for Team Dimension Data and for our sponsors, supporters, and fans. Um, the response has been completely overwhelming. Um, people are messaging, funding bikes for Quebec, um, changing lives in South Africa, um, and that is incredibly inspiring and humbling because at the end of the day, this is, this is just bike racing, um, but if you look at the impact that this team is making um, in a, on a continent, by distributing bikes down there that's um that's really humbling it's really an honor and exciting for us as a team um the morale and the atmosphere on the team is has been great um you know we've had uh ryan gibbons a super good sprinter um he's been in the mix on the sprint days and we'll have more opportunities in the next two weeks um Morale Kudus was in the breakaway and got 10th on uh, stage five. And then we have Louis Menkes, who's looking stronger and stronger every day in the overall. Um, Emmanuel, it's his first Grand Tour ever. Uh, I can't pronounce his last name. Apologize for that. Um, but uh, he's gaining some good experience, and he's already shown what a, what a strong rider he is. Igor Anton and Steve Cummings, uh, two legends of the sport, um, and then we have Johan Van Ziel, who's here, enjoying support of uh, of Louis. He's been uh, a big asset to the team. Um, so, yeah, everything is great. Everyone's having their opportunities. Um, the staff is really excited and supportive. And, um, yeah, I can't thank everyone enough. And, yeah, like I said, for me personally, it's just to have the opportunity in the first place um, to put myself out there is is a blessing and um yeah I'm, I'm really proud and grateful and uh thankful to everyone and for all the messages of support um over the last week great ben well we'll let you get back to the rest day it's uh about 10 p.m in spain right now which is i think that's just kind of like tapas time best of luck through the rest of the race ben yeah. and congrats again all right Ben King, putting American cycling back on the map. It's been a kind of a rough couple of weeks for American cycling. And we here we have this uh, this guy going out there and really crushing it. So, Hoodie, looks like they're packing up everything behind you. They're about ready to haul you away. So, uh, before we let you go, uh, what should we be watching for in the next week or so of racing, we're gonna check in with you a week from now. But uh, what should we? What should we? What, what are we watching for? Yeah, I think we can expect to see a few more breakaways. Um, 
we're pushing into uh, Galicia and northern Spain, pretty lumpy country up there. Tomorrow's stage, especially uh, stage 11, should be quite challenging. Uh, the sprinters are expecting uh, stage 12 to be a sprint. We'll see if uh, the break can stay away that day. But uh, I think Viviani and Quickstep are getting pretty hungry for uh, some more victories. And then we're kind of, you know, slowly getting towards uh, this next weekend. We see those three summit finales where I think really the GC will take some shape and see who can be the serious contenders for the podium in Madrid. Yeah, we're going to see Sepp Kuss put people in the pain locker again. Ooh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, Andrew Hood, thank you so much for your dispatch from the press room there in... I can't remember the town's name. Oh, looks like they're... Doing back to some work behind you. Watch out behind you. They're yeah. gonna drop the, the, the crane on you. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, get out of here. Go get some jamon and tapas. Yeah, get that out. Uh, All right, hot. boys. Some, uh, some Rioja. Yes, yeah. we'll talk soon. All right. Adios, amigo. Take care. Spencer, talk to me about RPI. You you raced your bicycle. There was gravel. It was Idaho. There were lots of other people there. What can you say about this event? Right. Rebecca's private Idaho is definitely one of the up and coming gravel events. Well, it's had, it's been around for six years. In fact, it just doesn't quite maybe get the same press as like dirty Kanza or something like that, but it's a very fun event. It has the same spirit as those major Midwestern gravel events because Rebecca, Rebecca Rush, the organizer of it, you know, she's very experienced with all of those. She's won dirty Kanza a couple times and she sort of brought that spirit out to Idaho to her hometown of Ketchum. And it's a tough day on the bike. It's, um, about 92 miles, not a crazy amount of climbing because you kind of, you do the big climb up front and then you're up on this really high plateau for a while. Beautiful mountain views, very dusty. Uh, you get some kind of choppy gravel up there, but, uh, not too extreme as far as gravel is concerned. There's not any like single track trails or anything like that. Like you get at Grinduro, for instance, but, uh, really fun time. And, uh, it's, it's also like more than just that one day of racing. They do a three day stage race that starts on the Thursday before they've got this awesome parade on Saturday, which is called the wagon days. It happens separate from the gravel race, but it, it coincides on this weekend and they have it's, I guess it's the biggest uh, non-motorized parade in the U S and they have all kinds of horses and everything and people all dressed up guy with a funeral parlor comes by with a horse and buggy with a casket in the back. And they've got, uh, at the, at the very end, there's the, there's the original wagon train, which is really cool. And, um, you get to see them riding around on horses, doing all that stuff. And then of course you head out on your own horse the next day, your bike that is. And, uh, this race is, uh, it's a good one. So were most people there for the three day stage race no, or for the one day? For the one day. Yeah. yeah. The, the three day stage race was an invite only last year. Uh. Rebecca's sort of slowly introducing it to her weekend. Really like the one day of racing is the main event. Uh, in total, about a thousand people turning out for this event. And an interesting side note that I thought is very promising and cool is 30% of these riders are women, which is quite high compared to some other events that are comparable. So yeah. Rebecca's doing a great job of appealing to to get more women to the race, and uh, and it's just a fun event overall. The, the real fun part it comes afterward because the after party's pretty pretty wild. They've got this this crazy drinking game they do there in Ketchum that's called Jalande quaffing, I think is how you pronounce it. But you've got a table, teams of four, and you slide beers across the table and you have to catch the beer off the table. It like flies off the table and you have to catch it. 
drink it, and then you like run around the table and trade off. It's it's kind of hard to explain. What's it called again? Jalande quaffing. Hey, Jalande quaff responsibly, everyone. Yeah, exactly. Jalande quaff right. responsibly. Right. Yeah, don't drink and drive, obviously, or ride. But uh, fun times, and that that adds an extra element of sort of celebration after mm. the race. Also, like you get some. Kind of cool swag. If you're under uh, six hours to finish, you get a special bolo tie, which is kind of uh-huh. fun. And the winners get custom cowboy hats. It's very Western feeling, you know, especially with the whole, you know, wagon train parade the day before and everything. Everyone's got a cowboy hat out there, which is smart because it's so sunny. Now, as an event, is this, would you describe it as a racy event or are most people there as, you know, completers, experiencers, um, or were people like really gone into race? I, like all good gravel events, it does a nice job of blending those two elements. I would say probably like the first 75 to 100 people in the field are, are fairly serious about racing it. And then, you know, this this course has got a good bit of out and back on it, which mm. in some ways an out and back course lacks some of the aesthetic excitement of doing a loop or something like that. But it's very cool because you see the back end of the group as you're kind of returning to the finish and you realize just how diverse the range of ability levels and skills are and people who are, yes, definitely out there just to finish, just to get, uh, they have a, like a, a bandana you get for finishing, that sort of thing. It's um, It's got that spirit to it, which I think is very important for gravel races to keep alive because that's kind of the heart and soul of it. These people who are just excited to be there, excited to challenge themselves with a big ride. So with Dirty Kanza, you know, it's it's of a length where everyone finishes and is completely gassed. You mm. know, front of the front of the pack is finishing is gassed. The, the backpack finishing is completely obliterated. <laughs> um, how would you describe the level of um, exhaustion, pain face, just like, you know, uh, overall fatigue of a finisher, Rebecca's Private Idaho? I would say it's it's moderate. It's yeah. not not totally uh, impossible to you know stand up and walk around afterward. It's it doesn't take you out of commission for weeks and weeks on end afterward. It you know like I said about ninety two miles. Uh, it, the climbing isn't too. There's not too much climbing. It's approximately five thousand feet of climbing, which is it's you know that's a lot of climbing, but not not beyond reason. So it, I think it strikes a good balance between being very hard and challenging, but not absolutely you know putting someone in an early grave uh, mm. so I, I i would say so yeah cool well put it on your list everyone Re- rebecca's private idaho check it out yep speaking of gravel we got to talk to this guy so mm. ashton lambie um you may have read about him on velonews.com he set a new world record in the individual pursuit at the Pan American Championships in Aguascalientes, hot water, Mexico. He was also part of the American pursuit team, men's pursuit team, that won the gold down there. Uh, Pan American Championships have happen every year. It's uh, all of the countries in the Americas battling, that, battling it out. And uh, Ashton Lambie is a pretty new member of USA Cycling's track team because he has such an unorthodox rise to the top. You know, a lot of times the guys and gals who are part of the national team, they were junior national team members, U23 national team members. They've been on the mountain bike, cross, whatever. They've been on the radar for a long time. Not this guy, though, because he's a gravel racer. Uh, when was the first time you heard about this guy? Uh <laughs> Last week, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'll put my hand up on this one. I did not see it coming. I really didn't. No. And, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's a real talent, clearly. Well, let's hear from old Ashton about his rapid rise to the top and some of the lessons that he's learned about cycling from being out there on the trail gravel roads. 
Okay, right now I am joined by Ashton Lambie, the man with the fastest mustache in pro cycling. You may have read about Ashton on VeloNews.com because he recently set a world record in the men's individual pursuit and was part of USA Cycling's men men's team pursuit team that has set a new U.S. record and won gold, the Pan American Championships. Also, Ashton has a very unorthodox entry point story into uh, professional cycling, which we are going to get into. Welcome, Ashton Lambie. Ashton, where are you right now? Um, I'm in Lincoln at our house, uh, just kind of chilling out. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Nebraska, not exactly known for turning out uh, world-class velodrome racers. I think you may be the first one, or at the very least, a member of a very short list of yeah. track cyclists from Nebraska. Yeah. Um, no, I think you're, it's not known for turning out uh, pro cycles at all in, in any discipline, I would say, more for football. So do you, you know, when you, when you tell your fellow Nebraskans that you are a professional athlete, do they look cockeyed at you and say, you're not a six foot eight defensive lineman? Yeah, it's funny, the dichotomy when you tell people like, oh, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I, I ride bikes, like I'm a professional cyclist. They're like, what do you mean? How do you do that? And I'm like, well, the same way football players do. Like, those guys, they're like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I guess you could do that with other sports. So, Ashton, let's get into it. Tell me, take me through your um, your record-setting ride there. You know, the individual pursuit is a very difficult race that involves pacing, strength, and dealing with a lot of discomfort and pain. What do you remember from the sensation and the feeling of that ride? Well, there were several, like, kind of stages to it. Um so, you know, we, we go out with a schedule, um, mm-hmm. and I had kind of talked with Clay Worthington, our head coach, about what schedule I was going to ride, and basically uh, we settled on about 15.3 seconds laps, which would have given me a 4.13. Um, so kind of with qualifiers, because that was the first round for us, and qualifiers, the goal was just to get into the gold medal round. Like, the goal is always just to win, uh, first and foremost. So you kind of want to do the bare minimum you can and still win, and, um, you know, be able to save some and have a good gold medal round later. And he was like, he kind of said to me, you know, if you feel like you're, you're on pace for world record, uh, and you're feeling good, like, don't shy away from that. Like, we're going to walk, I'm going to give you the feedback to try and get you to ride 15 threes, but, you know, don't be afraid to call an audible and go for the world record if you think you got it. And, so I came around like the first couple laps and I was sort of on pace. Um, and then by laps three and four, I was like way over pace. Um, so what, what we see at that point is Clay walks all the way back, like five steps back and he's pointing to the line, like you're way far ahead of the line and is then shouting times at us because he can't relay that information other than just verbalizing it. And so I'm hearing 14.4, so almost full second up per lap over the schedule and so i'm hearing like 14.4 14.4 14.5 and i'm just like okay well let's just hold this pace and try and get back on schedule like take as long to get back on schedule as possible right and uh by probably you know i kept doing that until maybe seven to go like i hit halfway and i was like still hadn't heard a time above 15 seconds and i knew in my the back of my mind that 15 twos were still world record pace and i was like man 
you know, we've only got another 500 meters to the last K, which is always the hardest part. And, uh, I was like, man, I think I just got to send it. Like there's no sense in, in saving anything. Like I've, I've got a lot of time in the bank over a world record pace. Like, let's just go for it. And the last K is just terrible. You just pretty much black out. So, ouch. Um, yeah. How, yeah. how would you describe the pain of that last kilometer? What is it? Is it muscle pain? Is it body pain, head pain? Where is it hurting? Everywhere. It's like, you know, you get lactic in your legs when you, when you're sprinting really hard or mm-hmm. whatever. It's just like lactic is your entire body. Like you, I got, I got done and I was like my, there was like lactic in my hands. Like I could just, you just feel terrible. It's, it's bad. So now did you have any premonition coming into this ride that you had a world record uh, ride in you? I mean, were there signs in your training that you were uh, at or near uh, world record form at this point? There were some signs. I mean, my ride in uh, Appledorn at the World Championships, that was like a 417. And that I knew that was a pretty slow track. Like, that was a C-level track. It was really cold. Um, it's not a particularly fast geometry of a track. Um, so I knew, you know, coming up to Aguas, which is a much faster track, I knew for sure that was probably at least four seconds. So you say that puts me into a 413. Um, I knew that, you know, coming up with three seconds over the course of the last six months, like I've been work, I've been training really hard, um, definitely peaked for this event and then just, yeah, I'm on a lot better form than I was in, uh, Appledorn. Like that was kind of the end of our travel season. We were all getting a little, a little cooked from just traveling and racing so much. And, uh, coming off a solid block of just training was good. And, um, yeah, there was one, one day I did an opener of just like a flying six laps and I was banging out 14.4 second laps, like no problem. And I was like, yeah, this gear feels really good. And he was like, okay, well maybe don't ride 14.4s, but yeah, I think that gear's fine. So like going out and doing that and have knowing that I could ride, you know, six laps at that pace and not you know, totally die means like, Oh, well maybe I could ride, you know, average 14 sevens. And that's still quite a bit slower. So Ashton, there's been a lot written in the last few days about your unorthodox pathway to the top of uh, track cycling. We see a lot of USA cycling national team members spend their whole lives in the program. That's not the case with you. Uh, How did you get into bike racing? I kind of got started in like the local road scene in Nebraska. Um, and then I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say I totally got burned down on it. It just kind of wasn't my, wasn't my thing. Um, you know, there's only so many like parking lot crits you can race. And, uh, yeah. So I got into ultra distance after that. Like I started off kind of in the ultra distance. I, the first big ride I did was this local century ride when I was 15. And then I got into randoneering. I don't know if you're familiar with that discipline of cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that and, uh, did that for a few years in college really really liked that just kind of a lot less competitive than road but still like inherently competitive i think similar to time trials where you're really mostly competing against yourself just to finish the race um and then moved down to kansas uh the long distance thing of gravel kind of appealed to me so i did that for a few years and then we have a grass track down there in lawrence kansas so i started doing that just 
mostly because um, I've always been a little bit more or a lot more muscular build than a lot of other ultra distance guys. And I thought maybe uh, my physique would be better suited towards something else. And uh, turns out it did. Yeah, track was a pretty good fit for me. So you famously yeah. set the record for riding your bicycle across Nebraska. You did so in about 24 hours time. What do yeah. you re- what do you remember about that ride? Probably the worst the worst memory was probably at two to three a.m. Like I listen to audiobooks when I do really long rides, and still use like an MP3 player because that's the best way to do it without your phone dying. But my MP3 player died at like probably two a.m. and that was it was long enough in like I was definitely super tired. It was dark. It was cold. I started get started getting into the hillier section of Kansas. Um. And then it died, and I was just like, oh, that was the one thing keeping me going, like, oh, I want to see what happens next in the story. Yeah, you never um, got to find out what happened to Moby Dick, huh? Yeah, He's exactly. fine. He's fine. He's okay. <laughs> He's perfectly okay. Uh, yeah. Well, that's good. Um, the best part was definitely when the sun came up. Like, if you've ever ridden through the night and seen the sunrise the next morning, you're just like, you're like a new man. It's it's one of the best feelings ever. And that was actually like, once I saw the sunrise, I knew I had maybe like another hour and a half or so hour to go. And I was like, Oh man, this, we've got this in the bag. No problem. Now the pain that comes from racing your bicycle across the entire state of Kansas to 24 hours versus the pain that comes from a four minute pursuit which is worse and how are they different? Yeah, that's something I've kind of thought about a lot the last few days because um, I've had a lot of people ask me about it. I always kind of think about it like you have to go into the well or like what some people would call the pain cave of just like this really deep level of willpower, right? Um, and so I think for for ultra distance, you're like you might not be going as deep into the well to get that that willpower to finish like you don't have to dig quite as deep but you're just like living in the well you're in the well for like like 12 hours but you're you know you might still be able to see that there's like a little bit of blue sky above you but when you're in the when you're in the like a 4k you are so far down the well it is like you're just completely blacked out you might as well forget that there's like anything up there you're just you're way down in the well. Like we'll get done with a ride, and me especially, I feel like I I get a lot of shit on the team for just being like full blackout when they're like, oh, Lam-. like my nickname on the team is Lambs because my last name is Lambie, and I'm a fairly easygoing guy. I think that's probably why I get the nickname. But they're like, oh, Lambs, what do you remember from that ride? And I'm like, I don't I don't know, man. I blacked out after the first K. So now Lambs, can can I call you Lambs? You can call me Lambs. That's okay. Fine. So Lambs. <laughs> A guy who excels in long-distance gravel races but also has the power to set a world record in the individual pursuit. Have you ever thought of, like, uh, cobblestones, classics, Paris-Roubaix? I mean, is that something that you have on uh, on your radar, something you'd like to do? Yeah. I mean, I think it'd be fun. Um a lot of people have asked me, like, if I want to start getting into road. Um, I don't I don't know. It's not like I, I super want to do it. Um, it's not like I'm actively reaching and trying to get, like, pro road contracts. Uh, from my perspective, like, I feel like things are pretty good right now. Like, I've got a good gig. Um, I'm doing stuff I love doing. Like, I get to stay. I, 
I don't have to travel, you know, and have like a hundred race days a year or something insane like that. I get a racetrack. I get to grow tomatoes. Like it's, it's, it's cool. It's a good balance right now. I feel for me. All right. Last line of questioning here, Ashton is about your yeah. mustache. Um, I appreciate yeah. the good mustache. First of all, how far under the world championships do you think you could have been uh, if you didn't have that uh, that large mustache? Is it is it an intimidation tactic to walk up there for a, a race against the clock, a race against aerodynamics, and to be labeled to look at your competitors and say, you know what, guys, I am so on form right now that I have this large mustache and I it, and I do not care. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I still I'm still not fully convinced that it's not that it actually like adds or detracts anything from aerodynamics. I know it's not, you know, scientifically accurate, but I remember watching Specialized do their wind tunnel videos and you do you, do you remember this one? Oh, they yeah. had a dude with a beard. Yeah. And uh so that's the one I hold up. I'm like, look, Specialized did this like full beard versus clean shaven. There's no way a mustache can make any difference. Like, I look really weird without it. Like, there, my passport photo has me without a mustache, and it looks bad. Yeah, how would you describe the look, Magnum PI or Doc Holiday? I strive for sort of like a Sam Elliott kind okay. of mustache. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes that's too lofty of a goal, man. You know, it just it's a humidity kind of thing. Just how much time I'm willing to take to wax it up every day. I don't know. Depends. It's a goal. Well, everyone, Ashton Lambie, owner of the world title in the individual pursuit. Thanks so much for making some time for us today. And best of luck in your buildup to the world championships. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Fred. Appreciate it. Okay, Spencer. Podcast is going painfully long. Apologies to the listeners. Just kidding. You probably wish you had a 10-hour News podcast because we're so enjoyable. We'll work on that for next week. Yeah. You know we won't. No, it's going to be another long not. one. Nope. Uh, before we get out of here, though, we have to do a little what's off the front, what's off the back. I swear this will go real quick because there's just two of us. <laughs> not Dane here to be like, oh, Jumpy Drucker. Oh, it, it would be Elio Viviani this week for him, for sure. Yeah. He loves Viviani. Uh, so w- what do you got? What's off the front, what's off the back? Yeah, my off the front is going to be uh, fondue as a, as a pre-race uh, meal. Okay. Because... American riders, American mountain bikers specifically, heading to Switzerland and turning in some amazing results. Uh, the, a lot of the American mountain bikers went to the Swiss Cup this past weekend in preparation for world championships, which are coming up this weekend. Christopher Blevins won the under-23 race, and then Aaron Huck won the elite women's race. So two Americans showing their stuff in arguably the hardest mountain bike cross-country series outside of the World Cup, I would say. I saw some stuff on Instagram from the course. It looked really difficult. They like, don't mess around. Slippy, slidey, really technical drops. Yeah, they don't mess around. They definitely don't. So kudos to those two. And we're looking forward to watching them race world championships this weekend. Uh And then so off the back for me is going to be long seasons because Mm. clearly trying to race from February all the way through September isn't going super awesome for Peter Sagan right now. (laughs) I mean, great year so far, obviously. Big wins early on. But uh, he's yet to strike gold at the Vuelta a España, which is something I really expected him to do given the fact that you know, it's not the most amazing field of sprinters this year. And there's a few tricky, weird stages that could be favorable for him to win, like a short uphill sprint. But Alejandro Valverde and, of course, Elia Viviani showing him the showing him their back wheels on a lot of these finishes. That's when I knew Peter Sagan was not at peak Peter Sagan was when Ageless Wonder 
Alejandro Valverde <laughs> beat him. I mean, it was an uphill sprint. No, it was. It, but yeah. still, it's like you you got to figure if Sagan's there, normal Sagan, he's going to win yeah. that. My take is this Vuelta is his training for 2019. Yeah, he's, there you go. He's doing the Chris Froome where he's putting in those miles in the end of the season. Kudos to you, Peter Sagan, for having a very, very long season. All right, off the front, off the back. Off the front, I have full-length racing jerseys as opposed to skin suits. You mean the zipper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the yeah. Zipper. Yeah, Spencer, cyclocross season has started somehow. Yes, it has come. It is, yeah. It, is, it came. We had the Pro CX opener at the Deschutes Go race. Mm-hmm. Roanoke, Virginia. When I hear Deschutes, I think Oregon. Yeah, I was confused by that one too, but hey, you know, it's a national beer brand. Good, uh, good on them for supporting cycling. So Kerry Werner, Team Kona, won both days of the men's race, and I'm looking at this photo of him right here, crossing the line, jersey zipped wide open. Yeah, That lets you know how hot it was. Not a good day to go with the thermal long sleeve skin suit. Uh, I texted him afterward because we had been chatting a little about his plans for the for the season as we're looking ahead to cross and what to expect from the domestic racers. And he basically was like, yeah, it was terrible. It was so, so hot. I I sticky too. Like 90 degrees, humid, dry, just like dry course. And, um, but Hey, you know, cross, everyone loves cross, right? Cross. Let's let's get after it. Let's get after it. Labor day weekend, baby. Yeah. (laughs) A traditional weekend to race cross. 90 degrees and humid. That's some cross weather. Yeah. Uh, All right. For off the back, I have running, and not just because I did some running this weekend. Yeah, running's running's the worst. Don't do that. Uh, In the women's race, the Deschutes Cup, uh, Sunny Gilbert, who is a very talented cyclist and former triathlete, apparently she was trying to run the long sand section, and that's where she lost it. Uh, Crystal Anthony was able to escape with the win, and Sunny Gilbert said that running basically probably cost her win. So as... Is uh, Velo News house keep, style? Yeah, we keep telling you guys never run. We keep telling you guys don't ever run. Just grab the bike. Grab the bike. Running's bad for you. I went running this weekend. It was very difficult. Good one, Fred. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the Velo News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velo News on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Villain News podcast is produced by Villain News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the Villain News podcast are those of the individual. As always, leave you the Brooklyn Blue Club. Thank you, Pretty classic soldiers. Soldiers.